We have a full Sunday with communion and an extra long sermon, so we're just going, I can see the excitement on your face. It is an acronym that when spelled out will say go blue, but we'll start with G, which is the emphasis of our Heavenly Father, God, no. Acts chapter 6, beginning verses 1 through 7, we're going to just start rolling because there's a lot here and so much that we're going to unpack more tonight. This passage has very little to do with deacons. Very little to do with the beginning and the genesis of the office of deacons. And has everything to do with every single one of us in this room in relation to one another. So this is not about deacons. This is about you and I. And it picks up in verse 1 of chapter Six. Now this is after they got flogged 39 times. Hopefully the context starts to fill your mind again. 39 times and they left rejoicing that they could be considered worthy to suffer in His name. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrew Jews because their widows were being over were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve apostles summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable. It's not right for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom you may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word of God. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose seven men, verse 6, because I'm not going to pronounce all of their names and give you the illusion of my intellect. Verse 6, and they were brought before the apostles and after praying, they laid hands on them. And the word of God kept spreading. And the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests that were the Sadducees who had liberal theology, these landy, these these land wealthy landowners gave it all up to become obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Father, I openly again and always must, Lord, confess my sin in front of my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not up here because I attained some sort of worthiness in and of myself, but in Christ through me. Father, I ask for your wisdom. I am in desperate need of your wisdom. I ask that you would give it generously. Though undeserving, I thank you that you promised to give it without without reproach. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. I pray that when we leave here, we would be excited about Christ in our lives. Father, thank you for Emmanuel, God with us. And so, Father, I pray this and I ask this in your Son's precious and holy name. And if you got all your Christmas shopping done, say amen. amen. <laughs> only women. Only, only the ladies said oh, amen. The men were like, oh my, what day is it, you know? It has been said to dwell above with the saints we love Oh, that will be glory. 
but to dwell below with the saints we know, that is a different story. The church is filled with people. You're welcome. That was four hours of hermeneutical study that I put together to get there. I know that's Captain Obvious. And so far, Satan has attacked the church from the outside, the Sanhedrin, 39 lashes, don't teach in this name. He has attacked it with the sin of hypocrisy in Ananias and Sapphira, and hopefully that sand of context just begins to fill this text. And so far, our adversary, Satan, has failed to stop the growth and the effectiveness of the early church. So Satan shifts his attention to a different different tactic. And truth be told, it is one of the most powerful and most destructive and effective ways that he attacks the church that hampers the purpose and the mission of the church. And we may ask ourselves, what is it? Was it demon possession? No, it was not. Was it heretical teaching from the pulpit? No. Was it the embezzlement of money? No. Was it cruel and harsh leadership? No. And while all of these things exist and can truly damage the church, they pale in comparison to what Satan is going to try and unleash in this text here. For what we are about to study in this text is the single greatest destructive force the church has ever endured. And we may say, well, what is that tack that we might be aware? Here it is. Murmuring members. Murmuring pastors. Nothing threatens the inward health of a church body than when members murmur, including me. When Satan can pit believer against believer with unmet expectations or imagined offenses. Truth be told, more works for God have been destroyed this way than any other way. When we begin to murmur against one another... Satan smiles. We might as well be clearing a place for him to take root in our midst. And in the, and this happens, by the way, in every church because the church is filled with what? Talk to me, church. Sinners, people. It's gonna come. It happens in every church, but especially happens in a growing church like the one we are studying here in Acts. You know, some theologians place the size of the church in Jerusalem roughly at around 20,000 men, women, and children at this time. In this kind of explosive growth, it was inevitable that someone's needs would be overlooked. And it is with this in mind that we begin to settle into the text we just read. And it says this, a complaint arose Oh, I can, I can hear this part of the text and I can feel it. There's a knock on the study door of, of Peter's uh, where he likes to, to study. And he hears a knock and the words that cut to the center of any pastor's soul like a cold, slow, rusty spoon. Hey, you got a minute? Nothing good ever comes after those words. Amen? Listen, if your girlfriend says, can we talk? It's not going to be good, all right? When your significant other says, hey, you got a minute, we need to hash some things out. We all know this to be true, regardless of the job or relationship. 
In fact, Steve Poling knows this, and every Sunday he walks up to me and he says, Pastor, you got a minute? And I look at him and I say, no, go away. Because I know what he's trying to do. He is one of Satan's vehicles, all right? No, I'm just teasing. I got Steve's permission to call him a vehicle of Satan. Moving forward. Stephen Cole, who I enjoy reading, is old. I like to read pastors who have no hair or gray hair. Because they've been there, done that, broke that, fixed that. And they have a lot of experience. And I love to learn from gray hair. One gray-haired pastor said this. When it comes to complaints within the church, a lot of times it's because of immaturity in our lives. And he says this. The church is filled with many spiritual babies. And spiritual babies will always dirty their church diapers. Now don't go looking around, by the way. Everyone's like, that is so true. You might be the baby, all right? In fact, I'm going to just go ahead and say, all of us are wearing diapers. Some depends, some diapers, all right? But we all dirty our spiritual diapers with immature complaints. I want you to notice what the complaint arose from. The complaint arose from an existing ministry in the church. That never happens. That never happens. A ministry existing in the church. In fact, it says here, food for widows. You can see it highlighted there. Now, there are two applications here, and they come from the Greek word, which means to complain. And the Greek word literally means it just wasn't a complaint. It wasn't just feedback. It was a murmur. It was a grumble. We need to see the distinction here. I want you to know leadership is fallible. And all of God's people said, what? Yeah, well, you are too, all right? No, we are fallible. I am extremely fallible. Sometimes, I just want you to know, I blow it. Sometimes I make poor decisions. So here's the first application. In the event that there is a legitimate issue, it is best to go to the one who is delegated to lead that area, talk to them directly, and in graceful, constructive manner, share your feedback and offer to be part of the solution. Now, the second application is, is found in the word here, which is to murmur or grumble, which contextually leads itself that the likely reality of what's going on here is that there was grumbling and murmuring amongst friends. They didn't go to the apostles and say, hey, there's an issue here. They went to someone who they know would agree with them because they're not looking for advice. They're looking for an ally. Aren't you glad that doesn't happen in our culture today? And they begin to murmur with one another. Oh, the dinner table ministry concerns. Here's a question. Have you ever had roast, roasted pastor for dinner? Anyone at all? Covered in a heavy glaze of genuine concern? To be clear, pastors are just as success, su- successful at this and susceptible to it. Pastors can be known to have roasted members, all right? For dinner. And I just want you to know some of us are easier to cook than others. Amen? We're just easier to cook. I, like Bernie Bacon. That's just an instant meal for me, all right? I said that because I saw Bernie's face there. That is not your seat. Why are you over there? Did someone take your seat? Because you're normally over there. If you're going to change something, run it by me. Quick, no. You ever have a roasted pastor or a member for dinner covered in a heavy glaze of genuine concern? And this dinner table murmur 
began to spread until finally it got the attention of leadership, which again makes you fear and tremble because sometimes by the time I hear it, I know 200 other people have already heard it. Maybe you have felt that in your life. This, by the way, is a brilliant attack by Satan. Here's the rub. The issue is genuine. The issue is genuine. How many here would say, widows need food? Anyone want to fight that point? Anyone at all? They don't need food. The issue is genuine. The approach was destructive. Oh, the application that falls from this in my heart. It says here, the Hellenistic Jews and the native Hebrews. By the way, this is just such a practical, this is just dripping with practical application here. All right? This will be great for us. Mostly great for you. I've arrived. But this will be really good, I'm joking, for all of us. This complaint is not about a doctrinal rift. Notice that. It is not about doctrinal rift, but of culture and of preference. Here's a question. Does the church today ever find itself in conflict over preferred culture or personal preferences? What is the answer, church? In fact, I would dare say 99.9% of all divisions within the church of America today or the kingdom of God is over preference, style, or culture. This is not a doctrinal rift. Very rarely do we deal with thus saith the Lord issues. It is almost always about how people personally apply the thus saith the Lord issues. They personally apply them to their lives and then elevate them and demand agreement in order to have fellowship with one another. This really is a form of secondary separation. How many here have ever heard of the game Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon? Anyone ever heard of the game Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon? All right? Two of you, because you only watch John MacArthur, I know. Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon works like this, that you can tie any, any um, artist to him within six movies. I feel like sometimes there's a biblical version of this game in our circles. I once received a lot of headaches for quoting from R.C. Linsky. Now I know all of you are like, oh, R.C. Linsky, he's my favorite. How many here have no idea who this man is? It's probably because you're cool, all right? R.C. Linsky is a brilliant theologian born in the late 1800s. Again, I like them gray or dead, all right? Brilliant theologian in the late 1800s whose ministry really blossomed in the 1920. He was brilliant theologian, great with original language, but he happened to be, I'm hard to say, he happened to be a Lutheran. I know. Can you imagine if I quoted a Methodist? I say that for my amen corner over there. Can I get an amen? You better. All right. Now, and out came the guns of secondary separation. It doesn't matter if what he says is doctrinally true. We don't agree with who said it. We don't agree with their doctrine. Therefore, even though what they say is true, we're going to disqualify it because of where it comes from. We do this with our songs. We do this with our books. But once I was able, going back to Kevin Bacon, because he's the center of our study today, (laughs) once I was able to show that John MacArthur quoted R.C. Linsky in his commentaries and used him in his studies and teaching, it all of a sudden became acceptable. So I thought to myself, is that the standard? 
If we can disqualify a song or a book or an author, even if what they say is doctrinally true because of who they are or once stay, shared a stage with, that with someone we disagree with, can I reverse the disqualification if I can prove that they once shared a stage with John MacArthur? Did you know I can link John MacArthur to Kevin Bacon in three steps? So here we go. John MacArthur once shared a stage with Kirk Cameron, who shared a stage with Jason Gold on, is it Family Ties? Anyone here old enough? Or Growing Pains? As long as we got... Let's move forward, all right? John MacArthur, Kirk Cameron shared a stage with Jason Gold, and Jason Gold was in a movie with Kevin Bacon. So... You know what this means? It means from now on, all Kevin Bacon movies are approved for small group Bible studies here at Trinity Baptist Church. And ergo, we will be watching Footloose tonight in our Digging Deeper service. Or we have to be intellectually consistent and ban all JMAC from our lives. And all those in favor, say amen. That's ludicrous. By the way, I love John MacArthur. I read his books all the time. I appreciate his ministry. I love his ministry. But this is not a doctrinal issue. These Hebrew Jews elevated cultural purity equal to or higher than biblical authority and holiness. Friends, if we are to elevate this kind of separation consistently to all areas of our lives, we would not be able to sing a single song. We would not be able to help a single soul. And as R.C. Sproul said it so elegantly, we would not be allowed to live on this planet. The divide here is cultural. It is secondary. Take a look at the words here, the Hellenistic Jews. The Hellenistic Jews, these were Jews who worshipped the same God as the Hebrew Jews. They were, but they were dispersed during, during the exile, during persecution. They were refugees, if you will, in different countries. These were the Jews that are mentioned in Acts chapter 2, 5 through 12. They spoke the Greek language and they were a multicultural group. They settled in Greek countries and absorbed the, the Greek culture and ways of life. That's hence the word Hellenistic, to have a, 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 a blending of cultures into your life. By the way, these Jews worship from the Septuagint. I know that sounds like a fancy word. The Septuagint is just the Greek. They spoke Greek. It is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. And they would study the word of God in the Greek. Oh, that is unacceptable. Because the native Hebrews, these were Jews who lived in Israel, primarily near Jerusalem. They were high cultured. They did not absorb the Greek culture or the language. They spoke not this grimy Koine Greek, but the native Hebrew and Aramaic. And they worshiped from the Hebrew text. Because, and because of this, the Hellenistic Jews were, were viewed as second-class Israelites. In fact, the Pharisees would teach that Hellenistic Jews were repulsive compromisers. Finish this sentence. There is nothing new under the... Do you see something here? Those Hellenistic Jews who read from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Testament called the Septuagint, those Hellenistic Greek-absorbing culture, Septuagint-using people were using the wrong translation of the Bible. There is nothing new under the sun. 
Remember the old KJV versus NIV wars? Anyone here old enough to remember the bloodshed on that? And then they, so as a compromise, they created the what? The New King James Version. And then both parties could just attack the one in the middle. Do we see what Satan is doing here? Let me contemporize it. These are classically trained, refined, high-culture believers in early Israel sharing a church with loosey-goosey, pragmatic, what's-the-big-deal believers. By the way, it was the refined, high-culture Hebrew Jews that created division here. Do you and I? Do we ever create tension and division because we elevate personal standard and culture above the love of people? But the attack was much deeper in this. In these true groups, there is a cultural divide beginning to take root where believer is being pitted against believer. Do we ever do that? Now, if this complaint was left unattended to, it had the ability to split the church, which, by the way, is exactly what Satan's trying to do. And what is he trying to do? With genuine concern, murmuring and complaining about an existing ministry, pitting believer against believer on an issue that is not a doctrinal rift in order to create a division between the church. And what will the split be over? You ready for this? Deep doctrinal issue, food. Truly, this is the beginning of the First Baptist Church. (laughs) But in truth, it is far more than food. Here it is. It was discrimination against believers who did not look like them, act like them, and thought differently in areas that were not biblically explicit. They're not like me. They don't share my preferences, convictions, style, culture, they, they discriminated against believers who did not look like, act like, or thought differently in these areas that were not biblically explicit. We like to call it in the old ministry circles as pastors, the old church mafia. A group of like-minded people who made sure that things remained the way they should be or everyone else would receive the West Michigan passive-aggressive kiss of death. I want you to confirm this. There ought to be no church mafia in the bride of Christ. Amen? We're going to dig into this a little bit more. Now, their widows were being overlooked because they were different. They were multicultural. They used the wrong Bible version. In the daily serving of food. Care for widows, by the way, was an absolute must to any Torah-believing Jew, regardless of the Bible version they read from. With the background we just studied of discrimination against those who don't act, look, or think like us, this implies that the Hebrew Jews, the high culture Jews from Jerusalem, were purposely neglecting the Hellenistic Jews. Now whether this is true or not, we are not told, but the optics are real enough that murmuring begins. A real issue in a destructive way begins. So here's a brief summary. What we have here is this, and we can't even relate to this. I say that with tongue-in-cheek because we can. What we have here is this. A rapidly growing church, a rapidly growing church with its needs outpacing the administration of it. But not only that, magnified by cultural division at the same time. This is a masterful stroke from our enemy. This is not a doctrinal rift. It is a a logistical and cultural rift. 
The strongest venom leadership ever deals with within the church is when a person's preferred culture is touched, not elevated, or not maintained to their satisfaction. So the twelve summoned the congregation of disciples and said, it is not desirable that we neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now I want to make something clear here. It's not that serving widows were beneath the apostles or spiritual leadership of the church. It was an issue of priority, not pride. Priority, every minute of your day, if you are disciplining yourself, you are constantly choosing what is best in a sea of good. We've talked about that at length. It's not a matter of, of, of pride, but of priority here. In fact, we know it's not an issue of pride because we'll see later in the book of Acts that they're washing people's feet, that they're helping the poor and the needy and the neglected. A biblical leader or pastor must prayerfully pour over the scriptures, working hard to understand and communicate spiritual truths. He must not and cannot treat the ministry of God's word with his leftover time. A pastor or leader's most difficult job is that of choosing the most important in a sea of never-ending rolling demands and needs. As your pastor, I cannot properly teach the Word of God if I must prepare in leftover margins of time. It must be the single greatest priority of my week. And for a few reasons. It is worthy of this kind of attention. To teach God's word in an incomplete, casual way is to shortchange and destroy the church. It is worthy of this attention, but another reason is because I am overwhelmed with how inadequate I am for this task. A teaching pastor must commit first and foremost to the ministry of God's word. I should not be your teaching pastor if I am not logging a minimum of 40 hours of week in prayer and study alone. In fact, they highlight this and say, we've got to devote it to prayer and ministry of the Word. So the question comes is, why? It takes time to prepare a biblical sermon. If a pastor slights his responsibility to feed the flock the Word of God, even to do good in biblical things, He, in the end, will have failed his calling. And I just want to take a personal moment here. I I love you guys. I love learning new names. I love that you are all here. I want so badly to be there for all of you in every area of, of your life and for you to be satisfied with my ministry and my life. But truth be told, I can't do it. The best way I can love every single person in this church is to dedicate myself to the teaching of the Word of God. Please know, I love meeting with all of you. And I meet with people every week just to love on them, care for them, and vice versa. New attenders, long-time members, strangers, fun people, difficult people, difficult people, and difficult people. (laughs) Of which I am the most, all right? I spend time in administration, oversight, serving. But all of these things are subject around the preparation of God's Word. I will not speak from this book without as much certainty as possible that the message I am about to deliver is God's and not mine. Because you don't need to know what I think. Can I get a witness on that? 
You don't need my approval. This church is not about what I think and how happy I am. It is all about the glory of Jesus Christ and living our lives, not because it's a duty, while it is, but because it is a delight to glorify Him. Now, with that being said, Satan's most potent attack on the Word of God is putting before a pastor multiple pressing needs that tempt him to leave his preparation in order to meet expectations. If I could meet every person's need in this church to perfection, yet a layer of dust gathers on these studies, I have failed. And the price will be the spiritual decline of the church. And I'm going to say even worse than that, What could possibly be worse than that? The displeasure of my Lord. Philip Brooks said this, Preaching truth, preaching is truth mediated through personality. Preaching truth is truth mediated through personality. A pastor must pray over his message, absorb every point, and then with fear and trembling, be God's spokesman and hemorrhage it in front of his people. Everything I do in the week is measured by how it will affect two things. I want you to know this. How will it affect my family? And how will it affect my preparation? Now save a crisis. When there's a crisis, I'm off. When, When we heard about Lisa Perry this week, everything stopped. And we loved on them. I delegate all things around these three things. Family, sermon, and crisis. Ministry, by the way, cannot start and end with me. I must both participate and delegate the ministry because both extremes are where the pastor fails. If I must be in control and present in all ministries, I will suffocate this church. And I will be creating it in my image. And it is not to be in my image. It is to be in the image of our perfect Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If I am absent from ministry, I am a poor example and leader. But I want you to notice something here that has very little to do with me and everything to do with all of us. Grab this. Therefore, brethren, or is it that select from among you seven men of good reputation and the spirit of wisdom whom you can put in charge of this task because we have to keep the top priority, the top priority. I want to start out that this is not the creation of the deacon office but the creation of a temporary leadership team to address a specific issue that seems to disappear once the problem is resolved. But we will unpack that more tonight. And by the way, there's a ton of application there. But I want you to notice something here, and this is, I think is huge. Just a huge... Pre- if, if applications are apples, all right, this one's big. Never did the idea of dividing the church into two groups cross the mind of these spiritual leaders. Never to dividing the church into two groups. Oh, will this ever preach? I'm just excited to tell you this, all right? I'm going to be scratching some itches, all right? May I? All those in favor of me scratching spiritual itches in front of you say amen. Paul's the same sign. Remain silent. Okay, good. All right. Never. Did they think, you know what we ought to do with the Hellenistic Jews and the, and the Hebrew Jews? I don't know where that came from. All right. Just, just make two groups. How can, the, how can we live out the gospel if our answer is to divide the church up so we don't have to sacrifice anything? As your pastor, 
I want you to know that I will always fight fiercely against any mentality of dividing the, the church, all right, of dividing the church gathering up. Personally, I outright reject the abhorrent idea of creating two services created around the preferences of different groups and then absurdly calling it unity. Does this look like unity to you? This is what we do. It is antithetical to what we see here in this context. To contemporize this, they didn't create a conservative service and a contemporary service. Well, that doesn't relate, does it? How many are glad we don't do that in the American church today? Why don't we just take contemporary service and Hellenist, or Hellenistic <laughs> and the hell service, which is the contemporary service? Septuagint reading compromisers. Why don't we just take the words conservative service and contemporary service and call it the Hellenistic service and the Hebrew service? We cannot love like God if we do not know one another, submit to one another, love one another. Church unity is not found in separation. Church unity is found in mutual submission to one another. Tell me, what kind of worship is it if it is designed so we don't have to sacrifice anything? Without sacrifice, what is worship to God? Sacrificing something you strongly prefer or strongly love is an act of worship within your worship service. Here's the point. Church should be a place where black and brown, white, Asian, Indian, and every tribe in between, where the casual and the classical can sacrificially stand next to one another and worship because the Jesus we share and the commission we have is greater than the culture we prefer. Amen? That is the bride of Christ. Never should be the answer to divide us into groups based on what we like the most. That's not the gospel. Now what their action did here is it created balance. It created balance. We'll talk more about this this evening. By delegating the inward needs of the church, feeding the widows, to people in the church, The apostles could continue the outward focus of the church, word, prayer, teaching, evangelism. My friend, I need you to grab this. It is the extremes of the inward focus and the outward focus that sinks healthy churches today. If we are all outward focus, Lord help us what we're producing inside. And if it is all inward focus, we lose sight of the Great Commission. It must be a balance. The extremes of these two things sink churches, and we'll unpack that tonight. Now look at what they did. They did not divide the church. They did not neglect the inward over the outward, or the outward over the inward. Now this is going to blow your mind, and we're almost done. I've been rolling through this. We're relatively along the way, all right? This is going to blow your mind. They adjusted their ministry... To meet a need in the church. Now, what's so big big deal about that? It's huge. All this is beautiful. They said and did the mother of all swear words in Baptist circles. They, I don't know if I can say it. 
I don't know if I can form these vowels on my lips and tongue. They changed the way they did things. Friends, I want you to curse with me. On the count of three, I want 500 Baptists to say the word changed. Ready? This kind of warm up those lips. Just say, Lord, I trust you. I'm going to fall backwards in my faith. On the count of three, one, two, three, changed. How many here feel a little dirty? (laughs) Kind of stepped out of our comfort zone, didn't we? By the way, all of the people they chose have Hellenistic Greek names. They're all in I Well, I just covered my... I don't want you to... Oh, okay. (laughs) That works too. They're all NIV reading people. Some of them went to movies. One of them danced one time on accident when they fell down the stairs. <laughs> but still, compromiser. By the way, I love dancing. Have you ever seen a man, middle-aged white man with lower back pain dance? It's more just kind of a swaying stalk of corn, but it's pretty good at it. They're all Greek names. They're all Hellenistic. They're all from outside of Jerusalem. In Iveers. This is a power release seen by the native purebred Hebrew Jews. It's a power release. We'll talk about that more in the evening. The statement found approval with the, with the whole congregation. All of the members. This is a 100% vote. Voted to adjust how they did things for the health of the whole church. They changed. All the members agreed to change how they did things for the health of the church. They did not say, well, we've never done it that way before. My friends, it is a mistake to overemphasize the organization of the church at the neglect and cost of the organism that is the church. No, by the way, the other is true. No, no organization hurts a church too. The leaders and the people were willing to change the way things were done to meet the existing needs in front of them. They did not... Now grab this. This is going to blow our minds. They didn't demand the needs of the people fit the policy. Have you ever experienced that? Susie and Phil need help. Well, according to our policy, they need to be dead broke for two straight years before we will release minimum funds into their lives. That's our policy. And if we don't follow our policy, then we're going to be subject to criticism. Let the criticism come. Let's love people. They changed. They did not demand the needs of the policy fit the, fit, fit the people, but, but that the, the policy was made to fit the needs of the people. The growth of the church and its growing needs called for the humility to change the way things were done in order to accomplish the goal. How often in today's church is the goal sacrificed because we won't change the way we do it? My friends, we must always respond to what the Holy Spirit is doing in our midst. This is huge. The organization is not, organization is not the goal of church. Organization is not the goal of church. It is a tool to accomplish what the Lord is already doing in our midst. 
I want you to know it is my personal commitment to you as your pastor that I will never make a momentous decision in this church based on where I think it should go. Who am I? I'm no different from you. I'm on the same sanctifying journey as you. I have to repent like you. You have the priesthood of believers. You've got the same Holy Spirit. Who am I that I somehow can just demand us run off a cliff? I will only lead you in a way that follows what God is already doing in our midst. And we must be flexible with the negotiable and unmovable with the doctrinal. That will preach. Flexible with the negotiable and unmovable with the doctrinal. The other day, the chairman of the deacon boards came up to me and said, one of the ministries we've been trying to do for a long time isn't working well and it's really not serving anyone. What would you... What would you like to do? Where should we move from here with this thing? And I said to him, I looked at him, I said, kill it. Or maybe we should slowly let it die. No, just kill it. Look for a better way to accomplish the goal. Maybe this ministry isn't needed at all. We'll unpack that tonight. But let's serve the people, not the structure. And he got the biggest smile on his face. And then I said, now away with you. I'm interpreting the word of God. We have such great deacons and deaconesses. Sometimes they are pressured to make popular decisions over healthy decisions, and they have shown such great wisdom. We are blessed with our deacons and deaconesses. My friends, when people problem comes, and they will, and Satan releases the most destructive attack, which is to pit believer against believer by using something good like a ministry in the church. We must not fan the flames with murmuring against one another, but lead and delegate and above all else, serve one another sacrificially, no matter how different we are from, from one another or how we apply secondary issues. For unity in the church is not based on everyone agreeing on everything, but rather everyone agreeing on one thing, which is to glorify Jesus Christ and the way we live our lives and love one another now and when these and when we do these things when we will negotiate the flexible with the negotiable and and unmovable in the doctrinal it'll do something here the word of god kept spreading where is that the word of god kept spreading and the number of say uh, of satans no the number of disciples continue to increase in jerusalem and a great many of the sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection who don't believe in heaven and hell they don't believe in anything outside of the torah they don't believe in in all of, they don't believe in angels they don't believe in all of the stuff they began to be trans, transformed and placing their faith. Oh, a, a, a healthy, flexible, loving church is an amazing evangelism tool. Evangelism is not a program. It is your life, living Christ and mine. Now, with that in mind, Satan's attack falls apart. Because the community was willing to do what it took. Not to divide and call it unity, but to sacrifice and call it worship. I want to close by reading a story I read this week. You know, attacks of Satan from within the church often come from subtle ways. And often over details of existing good ministries. And we like to think that 
our cause of murmuring is just and righteous. But truth be told, murmuring is never just and righteous. Ken Taylor shared this story, and I want to share it with you in closing. On a hot day, a family was traveling down the highway between two counties. And they stopped at Farmer Jones' place and asked for a drink of water, which the farmer gladly gave them. And he said, where are you headed? We're moving to your county, they told the farmer. Can you tell us what kind of people we'll find there? Well, what kind of people did you find where you came from, Farmer Jones asked. Oh, they were the very worst kind, the farmer said, or the family said. They were gossipy and unkind and indifferent. We were glad to move away from them. Well, the farmer said, I'm afraid you'll find the same people here. The next day, another car stopped for water, and the same conversation took place. The people were moving to the same county. What kind of neighbors will we find here? Well, said the farmer, what kind of neighbors did you have where you were living? Oh, they were the very best. They were so kind and considerate, it broke our hearts to move away from them. Well, the farmer said, you will find exactly the same kind of people here. When we are unhappy and we begin to murmur, the first place we need to look for the problem is our own hearts. And I'm going to close with this sentence, and if you've heard nothing here today, I want you to hear this. Christians who are unhappy in their last location are likely to be unhappy in their new. We tend to project on others what is most true about ourselves. I invite you back tonight. There is so much more in this message. But to close with this, this passage has very little to do with deacons and a, very, a lot to do with me and you. May we never murmur. May we never elevate culture over biblical authority. And may we never divide and perversely call it unity. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you at communion, which is to unify the church around one thing. You did not unify us around hymns, instruments, dress code, versions. You unified us around one thing, the blood and the body of your Son who took our place so that we might be saved. So, Father, we release everything else. And we gather around this one thing. Truth. Church, if you have broken fellowship with anyone in this room today, do not take communion. Let me make that clear. If you have broken fellowship with anyone in this room, go make it right before we mock this right. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Dead, dead and ugly. Dead and ugly. 
go do that before we take this. The rest of us, is there any sin in your life you need to confess? Take this moment to wash your feet. Thank God that you have been given a bath, that you stand clothed in his son's righteousness. But if you're anything like me, I get my feet dirty a lot. Confess that to you, Lord.